Welcome to the Woody Report. This podcast, Washington and Lee School of Law Professor Karen Woody and host Tom Fox discuss issues on white-collar crime, compliance, international corruption, securities law and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. From current events to topical issues to academic research and thought leadership, Karen Woody helps lead the discussion on these issues on this new and exciting podcast. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I would like to welcome you to the inaugural edition of the Woody Report. In this first edition, I visit with Karen about her journey to becoming a securities law professor, her professional background, uh, how she moved into academia, and now is a respected thought leader and academician around securities law. We talk about her work, some of the things that currently have her interest, and what she's thinking about for research down the road. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'm extraordinarily thrilled to bring you the this edition of the Woody Report. Yes, I finally talked Karen Woody into doing her own podcast. And Karen's been on several of my podcasts. She's a panelist on Everything Compliance. Uh, she did her own podcast on Classroom Insiders. But now we're going to get to take an in-depth look at uh, what Karen is thinking about, looking at, and it's got her interest. So Karen, first of all, thanks so much for finally agreeing to do this. Of course, Tom. I'm always happy to discuss more issues with you. So uh, I thought we could start with uh, you telling us a little bit about your journey to academia. Yeah, it's a great question. And my journey to academia maybe isn't sort of what I would say is the paradigmatic um, journey. Um, a number of professors sort of graduate top of their class at Yale, clerk for the Supreme Court, and wander straight into academia. I mean, more or less. That's not always the case. But that certainly wasn't my path. I um, graduated from law school not thinking I maybe would be headed toward academia. Instead, I uh, worked for a law firm for about 10 years. But importantly, before I worked for the law firm, the summer before uh, I took a summer associateship um, at a law firm, I was in Africa. So I spent my first summer of law school in Rwanda, and I was working um, essentially for what was the equivalent of the attorney general over there. And I thought I'd be doing a number of sort of international human rights type issues and projects. And I did a little bit of that. But because the particular office that I was placed in was, you know, facing other nations and other sort of the attorney general type um, position, one of my projects was to answer an interesting letter that the UN had sent to the prosecutor general about why Rwanda had such a significant uptick in exportation of minerals that are not actually found within Rwanda's borders. So the suggestion there was that there was a number of minerals that people from Rwanda were getting from Congo and exporting from Rwanda. So I spent the summer working on looking into these minerals, figuring out what they were about, you know, that kind of thing, and wrote this, you know, response to the UN. And that was a great sort of fun summer project, very, very interesting. And I just kind of left that there. Fast forward to then working at a law firm um, the next summer and then subsequently after law school. And I find myself reading Dodd-Frank sort of cover to cover after 2010. 
and see at the back of it buried in the miscellaneous provisions is this provision that says every single company that has SEC reporting requirements needs to report if they have one of these minerals from Congo. And the way that got into Dodd-Frank was sort of the classic sausage making of legislation. It wasn't really at all related to the rest of Dodd-Frank. It certainly was a miscellaneous provision. But the idea that I had sort of come full circle and, you know, in the course of uh, seven or eight years, I'm thinking back to thinking a lot about minerals from Congo was sort of an interesting thing. So then I kind of ran with that. I wrote a couple of law review articles on that topic and about the um, use of securities laws to uh, impact both foreign policy concerns and looking at sort of what is material information that the SEC um, mandates uh, disclosure for uh, and where that materiality comes from. Is that coming from a pet project from certain Congress um, members of Congress that we saw for conflict minerals? Or is it more of a ground up kind of idea that is sort of what we're seeing in, this, in the ESG realm? So thinking about that and writing about that really piqued my interest in teaching and scholarship. I ended up going back to um, school and getting an LLM in securities and financial regulation. And at the same time, teaching a lot um, while practicing, even just at night, because I really had a, had a bug. It was one of those times where I feel like I would work all day for the law firm. I'd go teach a class at night and still would find you know, coming out of class, I was more energized than I was going in. And so I thought that, you know, was something I should pay attention to and realize that teaching, the act of teaching is something that is energizing and fulfilling. Um, and so I went on the teaching the academic market and ended up at Indiana University um, and the Kelly School of Business. So I taught in the business school initially and then did that for about four years. And then recently, um, just three years ago, moved back to teaching in a law school and I teach at Washington and Lee University School of Law now. So that was my winding trajectory to where we are now. What do you focus on uh, at WNL uh, teaching? Well, I teach torts. So I, um, in the face of the first day, first hour of law school for a number of incoming 1Ls, I'm in my torts class. And then I also teach securities regulation um, business associations, and I also have done an insider trading seminar, as well as what is called a business immersion course, which is kind of a crash course in transactional drafting um, that we offer to the upper uh, level students. So a lot of business focused courses. I really love that business focus because I think that brings so much more to the discussion around compliance and regulatory compliance. And I'd like to turn which, uh, to what I think is one of your passions, which is insider training, uh, the Securities Act of 1933 and 1934, their relevance today, and how they have really been two of the cornerstone business laws in America for almost 80 years now. And if I could maybe start with, are they still relevant today? And if so, why do you think? I mean, absolutely. Uh, the 33 and the 34 Act are, as you said, they're the pillars of um, market regulation and still are. And the reason they're still relevant today, because even when we have new legislation passed, oftentimes that legislation is just amending or sort of adding on to either the 33 or the 34 Act. So we kind of keep adding on almost like a like a sandcastle, you know, just kind of adding different wings to it with new um, legislation. But the idea and the foundational principles behind those two laws really drive a lot of the thinking and a lot of the theory that we still see uh, in 
the regulation of markets. One of those I recently mentioned, which is this idea that disclosure is sort of um, the way to cure and to even the playing field in a lot of ways between the market um, and among the market participants. That very much came out of the thinking of the um, 33 and 34 Act, which, if you recall, is very much a result in an outgrowth of the 1929 crash and the subsequent depression. There was this sort of you know, need to set up a huge financial structure uh, in order to ensure that that type of crisis doesn't happen again. And we see that time and again. That's what Dodd-Frank was. It was the equivalent reaction after the 2008 crash. Um, and so it's not uncommon. But what's interesting about the 33 and 34 Act is that, you know, we haven't seen something similar, but it's not like we would, meaning, you know, law is always fairly reactionary and it's going to prevent something that happened before, but that thing probably won't happen in that same way again. And that's what we've seen time and again. But yeah, we still just kind of keep adding to these original foundations in part because, as I said, the theory and the ideas behind um, disclosure, an efficient market, meaning an, a market that digests material information and reflects that back in the price and valuation of securities. Those concepts and theories really get baked in to the 33 and 34 Act and are carried forward till until present day. And I guess the the in the way you phrase that, it really drives home to me the uh, how those acts, just the the basic concept of disclosure and excuse me, I would even say transparency really is broad enough and flexible enough to bring us forward to literally ESG in March of 2022 uh, with those same basic concepts in play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It is interesting. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. Well, I thought your next question might be about insider trading. <laughs> if it's not, I was going to say what's interesting is that that term, if we get into insider trading, is not found in the 33 or 34 Act, except for in Section 16, which is sort of an esoteric. Um, it's not esoteric. There certainly are Section 16 violations, but they are dealing more with sort of bulk trades and major swings of um, trades done by insiders. So it's not the typical insider trading that we think of and know of today. Um, and some of that was because that was more market volatility was more of the issue of the day in the 33 and 34 acts sort or of what they were thinking about. But the term insider trading is not in the, either of those statutes in the way that we think of what we're trying to regulate now it's in terms of insider trading. So I know we'll probably touch on that topic that I think a lot about uh, in one of your next questions. <laughs> Well, and that does really lead into one of the most innovative podcasts, I think, uh, we've had, uh, which was your Classroom Insiders. Um, and it was around insider training. But the real innovation I thought you brought was it wasn't Professor Karen. It was the students and that you challenged your students to become a subject matter expert in a specific question. And then you essentially um, interviewed them for the podcast. So I just wondered, uh, one, how did you think of that? And then two, the experience you had and what do you think the student's experience was? Oh, that's a great question. This was really one of the highlights of my last year working with these students. Um, how I thought about it, you know, it's something I've done a lot in class and it comes back to my idea that, you know, when you can explain something to someone else, 
that's when you've really mastered it and learned it. And so I say that to my students all the time, like go home to your dining room table and see if you could explain what we talked about today to someone else. Like when you can teach it, that's when you really have, I think, mastered it and thought it through and been able to wrestle with it. Um, and so I always have that a lot of classes, I will start with some students standing up and giving a review of what we'd done in the previous class or them give the cliff notes teaching of the previous classes. Because I think that activity is just a different way to engage the material and, and a different way to think about it when you are having to sort of, again, reteach it in some ways. So that's always been something I've thought a lot about and tried to use in my courses. And when this idea of the podcast came up, that was the same idea. I, I usually have students present the material at some point or, or be on call or have, um, you know, teach this, the class in some way in, in various times during my semester. But the idea of doing that via a podcast was super, I mean, it was, it was just so much fun. And the students, to a person, every one of them said, I was so nervous before we did it. And then afterwards, they said, this was actually not bad. And they had a blast. So it was, and I think it was, I was really proud of all of them. They did a really great job um, handling the questions, handling the interview. And I think they were really proud of themselves and had something to show for it. You know, they could send the link to their family and friends and you know, I think they were pretty jazzed about that being a, a different way to, to show what, you know, they're learning and what they're able to do. So I, it was a great, it was a total win all around. And also a way for me to, to assess them, to kind of grade them as one of their, that was one of their assignments was to, to be part of the podcast. And uh, what, uh, one of the things that really intrigued me was uh, several of the students were clearly nervous when they started the podcast itself. But as uh, you asked them questions and they answered them, they became more confident in their ability to just articulate it. So I almost saw them kind of grow or heard them grow literally within the podcast. And I hope they understand that uh, something I learned as a young lawyer that you might stumble, you might say, uh, and, uh, um, but if you have mastered the subject matter, a judge, a jury, uh, a trier of fact will not chastise you if you have a little trouble articulating it, if you show true mastery, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really true. It was really fun to see them. And, you know, I always throw them a curveball and see them, you know, really rise to the occasion. On, on almost every student did a great job. It was really, it was fun to watch. I'd like to turn now to your academic work and ask you, uh, first of all, um, what are were some of the favorite papers that you wrote, either in terms of the finished product or, frankly, just the research you enjoyed diving into it in a deep way that uh, you hadn't either taken the time or didn't have the time to do before yeah, that you published? It's a great question. Um, I have a few kind of streams, I think, of, of research is the way I would categorize them. But one had to do with conflict minerals. And then more broadly, what conflict minerals than that reg regulation sort of represented to me, which was in some ways the Congress using securities laws and securities um, laws mandates to affect foreign policy. And we saw that in the conflict minerals rule. And then we saw it in what was considered sort of its sister provision which was the extractive industries disclosure mandate, which required any company in the extractive industry to um, disclose whatever payments they were making to foreign governments. And those were legal payments, obviously, or illegal payments were in a different area of the law. But these were legal payments made to um, research-rich countries. And so, you know, what was the purpose of that? And like the conflict minerals provision, the little, you know, sort of um, intro to the provision said, we're doing this essentially to 
um, you know, allow for the citizens of these countries to see the transparency, to have them know this is a way for those people to see what um, American companies are paying to their government, sort of an almost anti-corruption type of idea. Um, again, not necessarily focused on materiality to investors of companies on our exchange. Like the, the point of that law really was an extraterritorial sort of foreign policy idea, just as I argued the conflict minerals one was. It very much was, you know, the preamble to the conflict minerals rule says, you know, it's the, you know, um, understanding of Congress that there's a humanitarian crisis happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So therefore this, like this is our kind of attempted solution or attempt to, to mitigate some of what's happening over there. And that, you know, mitigation is a mandatory disclosure for reporting companies. So that disconnect between forcing um, reporting companies to add that sort of to their list without that, again, coming from maybe a drumbeat from investors of having this be something they consider material. Uh, I thought that was a fascinating um, area of law to look into and where else Congress has done that, you know, and also, you know, the idea that those are really for good reason. I mean, the, the, I, the notion behind both of those provisions is one that um, everyone I think can get behind. No one is going to say they're in favor of, the humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo or of corruption in research-rich countries. But the manner in which, you know, we are trying to get our arms around that problem was what I, I really tried to, to wrestle with. Um, so that has always been something that's interesting to me, sort of. Um, and it goes back to some of my work in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act area, which I also still write about, this idea of um, American morality being exported, this idea of, you know, what does it mean to have, to try to tackle corruption? Certainly when we're also dealing with, um, foreign businesses and foreign countries. And so all that to me, um, that really was derived out of my practice and, and traveling the world, working on these huge foreign court practices act cases and, and seeing how those play out really on the ground. So that's certainly a couple topics. And then as, as always, I still find myself stumbling back into insider trading and likely will keep working on a little bit of that this summer, looking at the theories behind the SEC's new expansion with shadow trading and all the other sort of hot topics in that area. It definitely is um, an area of the law that's not yet settled for sure. So that's go back that. to that's you. Go ahead. Let me go back to your conflict minerals because uh, I was interested uh, when you talked about the either the reason for the passage or the use of this business strategy for foreign policy, I would have said it's an anti-corruption um, initiative. But now you talk to people uh, in ESG, they point to conflicts mineral as really one of the basis for ESG. And now it's, it's almost used as a national security issue because mm -hmm. of the, the war in Ukraine and other geopolitical events have caused constriction or restriction of uh, important or valuable minerals being uh, imported uh, to the United States. And so the evolution of conflict minerals to me has been one of the most fascinating stories. And that evolution has literally been within 10 years. Yeah. It's amazing that, you know, when you get a Google alert every day, which I still do on think something that mentions conflict minerals and you're right, the spectrum of what that, you know, article or, you know, newspaper headline is about is spans, you know, a number of different areas, as you said. Um, yeah, I think it's right. I think it's still a national security issue. It's definitely, um, you know, I, 
the idea that behind the Dodd-Frank, what ended up being kind of the de facto embargo certainly implicated a number of other foreign policy issues, meaning like China and the role of China in Africa and in the exportation of these same minerals. Um, and, you know, it's just it's it's something that I think is not going to go away. I mean, I what I still say all the time about ESG and what I appreciate that I can kind of change my argument to some extent, because my argument initially was that conflict minerals was um, an improper use of the securities laws and because it wasn't material. Nobody knew about it or cared about it. And so just sort of jamming these things into mandatory disclosures wasn't the way we have structured securities laws. That's sort of not material information. So we're mandating this um, information that investors don't care about, which was not the point. It really was conflict minerals and in its inception was a consumer driven, you know, in actually a total name and shame provision. There was no penalty for saying that you had conflict minerals. You just had to disclose it. So everything about it just seemed like it was very much consumer driven. Like they were going, they were asking for consumers essentially to boycott maybe these companies if they disclosed that they use the minerals. But that was the extent of any maybe, you know, any possible ramification. So, you know, is that, you know, securities disclosure, is that the best way to, to have that happen? I, I don't know. I don't think that's the case, especially with what companies fell under the ambit of this. It was companies who had products in the market. So they had the final product and needed to do the full supply chain due diligence, which most of the time was uh, not possible. I mean, most companies were like, we don't know where these minerals come from. We just make this widget that goes to Costco or whatever, but we it's hard for us to get all the way to this really sort of the source of these um, products. And so I will say, you know, my next paper after really critiquing the conflict minerals rule and the use of securities law wasn't a sort of a bit of a pivot. And I appreciate that now my pivot has sort of come full circle. But the initial pivot was that there were some there was some good that came out of it. Uh, and that title of that paper was actually Can Bad Law Do Good? And I think some of the good was that we really did learn how to figure out or not. We didn't maybe successfully do it, but we did focus on what does the full supply chain look like? It is kind of strange that these major companies don't like can't see where these things come from. Like you'd think that in this day and age, it would be something that you could track all the way to its source. But for the most part, most companies could not. And so the requirement to have them actually put some effort into figuring that out, I think, was an overall good. And then another overall good of that initial um, regulation was that it did heighten, I think, the um, consumer and public uh, idea or um, concept of conflict minerals. No one had heard about it. No one really knew about it. And now we have this required rule and the number of people calling me to say, we got, we apparently have this filing we got to do. I don't even know what it's about, you know? So the, very quickly, a lot of people <laughs> learned a lot about conflict minerals because of that regulation. What I think is the reason for my sort of full pivot of being very much behind the ESG measures and behind them in the same manner, meaning we sort of still come out the same way, some sort of mandatory disclosure, due diligence. But the thing that's different to me is where they originated from. ESG really does seem to be coming from investors. Query whether that's all investors. There certainly are some investors who don't want this. But for the most part, we've seen, as I've said on other podcasts with you, Tom, we've seen the drumbeat coming from certainly institutional investors, and a number of retail investors, a rise of social funds. And so the fact that that itself makes it 
definitionally material information. So that seems like the proper process um, in order to create additional disclosures. Even if you end up kind of in the same place, the path there for ESG seems different. And I think it um, is more powerful and it's, um, I hope will have uh, more of a lasting impact because it really is people asking for this. So uh, I can easily go down the rabbit hole about all that. So <laughs> I'll just stop there and wait for your next question. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that you said really intrigued me, which was um, the requirement that companies know who was in their supply chain, and they really had no idea. And I've talked to a lot of people around this issue, and they always say this leads to greater business efficiency. One, you know, who's providing what and at what cost, but it also can allow you to have resiliency if you lose a component of your supply chain or really logistics, transportation or anything else to get the raw materials or finished product to your market in America or elsewhere. And so what I really see this is leading for the longest time, I've said effective compliance equates to greater business efficiency, but I'm seeing that play out again. Is, is that what you were saying around uh, or uh, having a regulation drive business efficiency as um counterintuitive as that may sound. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, that's why I said I think that was one of at least one positive takeaway of what, you know, I had argued was not a great uh, law, at least in terms of the securities side of it. Um, I think it's, it's it was sort of surprising to me how few companies could figure out where their products came from after a few, you know, two or three um, links in the chain. And of course, now everybody knows the term supply chain after COVID. I mean, I had people trick-or-treating in costumes that looked like supply chain, which I thought was hysterical. But everyone now knows this term. Everyone thinks of it as, you know, related to COVID. But some of us have really been thinking about it in terms of, uh, you know, sanctions or um, things like conflict minerals or conflict diamonds, other things that have sort of percolated up into our, uh, our orbit. But now everyone knows about it. And so I think everyone is very aware that, you know, the world is very interconnected. And so we have to figure out where these things come from, because as we start seeing where there are, where there are weaknesses in this supply chain, as we all have seen in the last couple of years, it affects everyone. Um, and so it is important that businesses figure this out and figure out how to um, streamline those things. Um, so I think uh, overall it's, it's a benefit and it's a good that people have a, a very clear, transparent supply chain. Well, Karen, unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or any of the topics we touched on, what would be the best way for them to find out? Oh, it's a great question. I can be reached always uh, on my university website or on uh, via my, my work email, which is kwoody at wlu.edu. Um, and I'm also available on Twitter at kewoody. Um, and you can usually find me near near Tom Fox, wherever he is. <laughs> well, on that note, Karen, I wanted to thank you again for finally agreeing to doing a podcast. And I can't wait to see where it goes. I can't either. Thanks so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Woody Report. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. I was going to help get the word out about this newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to link to Karen Woody's 
LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, you can follow up directly with Karen. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Woody Report.